Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, The story goes there once was a a vendor who set up his bagel uh, stand on the corner of a busy city street and uh, he sold bagels for 50 cents there. Um, Every morning there was a jogger that would come through and uh, and pass by his stand and the jogger uh, would take uh, 50 cents and he would throw it into the pail uh, and then he'd keep on running. He did this to this vendor for weeks and then months, and even over a year, every morning, the jogger would come by and he would throw 50 cents into the container for collection, and he wouldn't take a bagel, until one day, the vendor stopped the jogger and said, and the jogger said, I bet you're, you're probably stopping me to ask me why I'm putting in 50 cents every time that I come running by here and uh, not taking a bagel, and and the vendor said, no, actually, I'm, I'm stopped you to tell you that the price of bagels went up to 60 cents. Okay. I had a better response in the morning, I think. But you get the, you get the, you get the joke. Um, this is not a stand-up night tonight. Uh, the point is this. We, we often in our life are like that vendor. God has come into our life, and he's given us so much. In fact, everything that we have... We wouldn't have it without him. And he doesn't come to us asking for something in return. He doesn't come to us asking for us to pay for anything. He gives us, and he gives us, and he gives us freely. And what do we say in response to all of that? Well, we might not say it directly in our prayers, but we have this condescending attitude that says, God, you haven't given me enough. Or we say, and here's what we we come to tonight, uh, when we talk about stewardship or caring for the things that God has put in our care, our body, our finances, our relationships, our time, all that stuff, what we say is, what if, what if, God, you gave me um, better health? Because if you would give me better health, then I could be a better steward and help other people be a better neighbor. We say, God, what if you gave me more money? Uh, because if you'd give me more money, then I could start being generous. What if you gave me more time? Um, Because if you gave me more time, God, then I could serve other people more, or I could do the things that I want to do to serve you more. If you just gave me more time, God, and yet this is all backwards thinking. Why? Because God doesn't want us to think about the what ifs. He gives us everything in Christ and more than we could ever imagine. And for us to think about caring for the things that God has put in our care, our body, our time, our abilities, um, the, you know, our finances, all of that stuff, we need to rewind the tape and realize that nothing that we have is actually ours to start with. And life is less about the what-ifs, and it's more about the what's done in our life. And we know what's done in our life when we open up this book, the Bible, and we read about what God has accomplished in our life and the promises that are there. So tonight, my prayer is that we go into two directions— to find out what God has done in our life that will make us a more generous person, a person who has more appreciation in our heart, to learn that God has made every sacrifice for us and made it personally and set up his residence right here. His residence is right here through his Holy Spirit. And because his residence is right here, because we can see the what has been done, and this will be in our second half, we're going to look at What we do to make his dwelling in us, what we do to make that dwelling um, impactful in the world around us through relationships, through service, through giving, 
and, and to do it with joy because his spirit resides in us, okay? So God is pleased to make us his dwelling. That's the first half. And the second half is he makes his dwelling in us so that we can make a difference in the world. The background to Second Chronicles chapter 7 is this. Solomon is dedicating the temple. The temple was a, a building that he and his father had in their minds for many, many years to build. It would be a permanent residence for God's presence in, on earth. For many years, God put his presence on an ark, and on that ark, he, he said, build a tabernacle or a tent, and people would come to that tent or they'd come to that ark um, that didn't have a home. And so Solomon's father, King David, who had a brilliant military career and political career, who captured the city of Jabus who drove out the Canaanites and set up the city of David, that's what they call Jerusalem even to this day, he had a strong desire in his heart to build this temple for God. He said, God, after all that you've done for me, can I make a permanent residence for you? And God came back to him and he said, no, no, you cannot. But he said, your son, your successor, Solomon, he will be the one to build the temple. Now Solomon gets rolling into his um, kingship, and uh, he takes God continues to bless Solomon and the kingdom, and it grows. Even he, Solomon grows even richer. We even heard it in that gospel text from Matthew that Solomon had all this splendor. The queen of Sheba came on a on a political trip just to see the great things that Solomon was doing, and she said, "I'm going to go back and tell everybody that what I'm seeing here is even greater than what." Um, what I've heard about, and that your God is, is a good God, and he blesses you, your kingdom, and you're, you're a king who is going to do good things for, for this people. Solomon takes all of the resources of his kingdom, talk about a steward, talk about knowing how to take care of God's stuff. He takes, he takes all the stuff in his kingdom, and he takes all of the riches of his kingdom, and he pours it into this building project. And it's much more than a building project. It would become the jewel of Jerusalem, the temple, the first temple. Solomon's temple, okay? And so Solomon begins to build the temple in Second Chronicles. He furnishes it out, and there's this detailed plan in Chronicles that talks about where everything went and how it looked on the inside, very carefully crafted and, and done to the exact specifications that God said. And finally, the day comes to open the temple. Solomon calls all the people from all over Israel and far beyond that who are believers, and he tells them, we're going to have a dedication, basically throwing a big party. And 2 Chronicles chapter 6 is that big party. And during that party, they had the priests enter into the temple and do the liturgy and lead the services. But uh, it's almost comical the way that it's written. A few times, no less than two times, um, during this seven-day celebration, God's presence enters into the temple and cloud fills the temple and God's presence is there and the priests go running out of the temple. They say, no, no, we got to stop the service. Uh, There's too much God's presence in there. We can't even go on. That happens almost twice where God literally is a showstopper during this dedication. Um, Solomon has these awesome offerings. I think if you add them up, there are over 40,000 of his own personal livestock that are dedicated at this um, uh, ceremony and slaughtered and sacrificed. And even for a king, a very wealthy king, let's think about that, 40,000 livestock, that's like giving away all of your, your money stock almost today. So there's, there's these huge sacrifices that were going on and these big celebrations. After the party, after the seven, eight-day party, everybody goes back home. And one evening, as Solomon is in his palace, one quiet evening, 
that big show-stopping presence of God comes to Solomon in a vision. And he says to Solomon, God speaks to him, and he says, verse 11, this is the background, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for my, as myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes, my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David, your father, did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. So God comes to Solomon and he talks about what he would do as he would take inhabitants of this temple. But if you would really listen closely to those words, God is talking to Solomon at a much more personal level. God acknowledges that he's going to dwell in a temple, but what's he really interested in when you actually hear what he's talking about? It's in the verses just before this. He says, I'm interested in my people. I want my name to be on them. And I want them to have me inside of them. No doubt I'll, I'll, I'll have that show-stopping uh, uh, presence in the temple, but really, what is God trying to say to Solomon here? He says, I want this temple. I want this heart to be my residence. And you don't have to, although they would, go to Jerusalem for the big festivals and worship and sacrifice there, atoning sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin, thankful sacrifices, all sorts of different sacrifices. But listen to this. He says, when my people who are called by my name, listen to how personal and intimate this is. It's not just about attending a church service. Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And the verses right before that are talking about the consequences of their wicked ways. There's famines, there's locusts, all the consequences of sin or pushing God to the, um, I'm going to say, the, the, the margins of life. In fact, pushing him out of life and replacing him. Uh, that, that's bad. And that's going to be bad for you personally. And it's bad for your land. And he showed it in the consequences. But if you humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear, listen to this, from heaven. You know, he's going to reside in the temple, but this is a God in heaven listening to you speak from your heart relationship. And he's saying this in light of all of this building and dedication and and, and pomp around the, the building of the temple. And here's the key point about his presence. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. And so he's bringing in restoration in places that are broken. And his real rule would be in the temple, but he wanted to really get into the heart. And he really wants to get into your heart too. That's his real rule that he wants 
We are a lot like the people of Israel in this way. They had consequences for their sin. And you see it because God allowed locusts and plagues and all this nasty stuff to happen to their land. We want to push, by nature, God to the margins of our life. And when we do that, something has to take its place. In fact, often that thing takes center stage in our life, and then God gets pushed to the margins. And that thing is an idol. It's an idol worship of the heart. God made our world. He made our stuff. He made the things that we have. And he said to us from the very beginning, you rule over them. You manage them. You take care of them. You're the steward. What did he tell Adam and Eve in the garden? Here's all this world. Take care of it. But do you know what happens? After the fall into sin, every single human being falls prey to this, is that the created thing, the thing that we're supposed to manage, becomes the thing managing us. It happens when you're driving down the street, or it happens to me sometimes, that idol creeps in there when you're driving down the street and you stop at the stoplight and you look over and you see, ooh, that's a nice car. If only, God, I had that car, then I know that you love me. Then I know that I'd be happy if I could have that car. What has happened? An idol has taken front stage in my life. And if I don't shake that and repent and humble myself and say, my, my greatest contentment is not four wheels, but it's a God in heaven who loves me. If I don't sacrifice that idol on the altar right away and kill it, it can take over and consume It's true for not just cars and things. It's true for things that you see online. Um, You look at Facebook and you see somebody else that has a great life or a a spouse that does things for them. And you say, I wish my spouse did that for me. And all of a sudden, you feed that beast a little bit. You give it the right water, the right temperature, the right sunlight. You feed that envy and it grows up into a huge monster monster. And that monster makes you always think there's always something better out there that's going to make me more content. What if, God, you gave me a different wife or a different husband or a different relationship? What if you did that? I would be much happier. You see how sin creeps into our life and the things that we should be managing as blessings start to manage us. Um, and the list could go on and on. How long do you, do you have? I, I have three hours, four hours to go through the whole list of the idols taking over our life. Whenever we fantasize about these other things that that would take over our life, they really make life miserable. And like that famine and like the locusts and like the physical stuff happening in the land of Israel, we actually create for ourselves a famine. Because no created thing has ever satisfied a person all the way through. And as soon as you get the truck, you look over and you see another car and you say, well, I want that one too, or I want more. Or you say, Um, Once you get that life that you thought that would be a blessing, you say, well, actually, now I want something even more than this. And once you get money or once you get the career, you say, well, now I want, and it consumes. It's like a snake eating its tail, and all of a sudden, your life becomes a famine because you're just always running after the things that are uh, moth and rust destroying, the things that aren't going to last forever, and the things that leave you empty inside. 
The story goes that there's a pilot who's taking off from a runway, and he's, he's going over a body of water in his boyhood town, and he goes to his co-pilot, and he says, I used to go fishing as a boy down there, right over there. See that log? That's where I'd go out after school, and I would go fishing for hours and hours, and there'd be planes taking off when I was a kid, and I'd look up, and I'd say, now that's what I want to do. If I could only get away from this stinking fishing pond and fly airplanes. And then he said, and you know what now? Now that I'm flying airplanes as a job? What's all I want to do all the time? (laughs) I want to go fishing down there like I was when I was a boy. The heart is never content. That's the point. And the the most scary thing is, is that the heart is not content. And when you replace God with that idol or whatever it is in your life, and you push him to the fringes, if by the end of life you've pushed him completely out and he's not your king, there's eternal consequences because you were not going to enjoy eternity with God. He hasn't been part of your life when you lived, so why would he be a part of your life after? And we die without God. And that's the, that's the sad reality of, of the people then and the people today, yourself and myself included. But, but, here's the amazing thing that God has done in our lives, is that he entered into them. And, and that's really the cool part about all of this talk about God dwelling with man in a temple and God coming into the hearts of people who repent and then healing them and forgiving them. Um, he says, I have chosen this place as a temple for sacrifices, verse 12. Imagine that, that God would choose to come to my stinking planet of dirt and enter into my life after all I've done to push him out. That's why th- these words are amazing. Uh, last week we went camping on the, on the church camp out, and a friend and I were around the campfire, and we were sharing camping stories. My friend had gone to Big Bend National Park. Has anybody been there before here? Big Bend at nighttime. I mean, I think there's a McDonald ex- uh, observatory nearby. It's, it's awesome when you look up into the sky because there's so many. My son says, Daddy, where are all the stars, you know, in our backyard here in Austin? There aren't many stars in Austin, are there? Because all the lights that drown out the, the awesome lights out there. But then we go camping just in, you know, a, a half an hour from here out in the country, and the stars are awesome. But then you go to Big Bend. And my friend was telling me when he was a boy and he would lie down on his back and he would look up into the sky there camping and he would look in between two stars, just two. And he would look closely and he would see, oh, between those two stars is another star. And between that star and another star, you look in between those two and there's another star. And finally, you get looking so far into these stars that the whole sky is lit up. It's almost like there's no darkness if you'd see all of the stars that are there at night. Um, it's an awesome thing, and it's an awesome feeling to, to stand there and to look up and to say, wow. <laughs> and then to think that God made every one of those stars, knows every one of those stars, is older than all of those stars that are finally hitting our eyes after all of that space and time that it's passed. He's older than all of that, and that he would decide to come down to our planet and say, this planet, that person, Dan, is more valuable to me than, wow. (laughs) And so that's why you have King David, Solomon's father, saying this in Psalm Psalm 8. He says, 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Wow. That you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. And then David's son comes along. And in the chapter right before the Second Chronicles chapter 6, as he's building this awesome crown jewel of Jerusalem, Solomon says, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? Wow. <laughs> awesome. But not that he would come and dwell in a show-stopping, drive-the-priests-out-of-the-temple type of dwelling, but that he would come and dwell with us, not with a sword, not with fire, not with judgment, but he came as a baby. As a baby. Who can turn away a baby? Seriously? <laughs> he said, I want to come and be the most vulnerable thing, a child. And when you see that little baby, and we're going to see a lot of that little baby in the upcoming weeks and months as we talk about Christmas, you think to yourself, God came and became this for me? And if you're a baby, you can relate to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was a baby. And if you're a kid, you can relate to God now. Wow. Because God was a kid. And he went to probably rabbi or Sabbath school. And he went to all of the things that kids do. And yet he lived a perfect life through it all. And you have a friend that lived in, through suffering as, a, as an adolescent. And if you're an adult you, and you suffer because people don't like you, you have a Savior who is God because, wow, he suffered at the hands of people. And ultimately, he gave his life for you, even though he never sinned on the cross, so that you and I can have life with that God who says, I desire to dwell with man. Wow. And that's the big wow behind the temple. That's the big wow behind all of this, this, this thinking of, of, would God really dwell with humans? Yeah, he would because of his infinite love. He would dwell with humans. That's why he wanted to dwell with humans. So he came in, into our world, not just in a temple, but he came into our world as a human being who lived in our place. And he, you should see how intentionally he's loved us. He's chosen us, it says. Um, in fact, in these verses, uh, go ahead. Uh, no, this is the right one. As he's talking about dwelling in that physical temple that Solomon built, listen and see his intentionality. He says, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place. I have consecrated it. That's a word that means I've set it apart. I've made it something special. I've made this, this temple and this chosen place a, a special place just for you and just for me to dwell in. That shows you that God is intentional about his love with you, that he would choose you and he would choose a place to dwell with you in time. And then you see God's, um, besides his intentionality, you see his permanency. He says his name will be there forever. And that, he, that Solomon will never ha ha fail to have a successor. I know that as a father, I want a part of me, a part of our heritage, a part of the things that I believe are true and right. I want those things to go on to my children. And I want to change a whole family tree or maintain a family tree with the values that have been given to me. It's called your heritage. And Solomon was thinking in his mind, what's going to happen? I, and he writes this in Ecclesiastes too. He says, I've built up this huge kingdom. Now, what, what's going to happen after it? God says, I am going to make it last forever. I'm going to let it go on forever. And he would in the person and work of Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem and who is born in the line of David. Your Savior is the fulfillment of this promise that the temples would come and go. 
and the kingdom would come and go. The Romans would be ruling, not Solomon and his line, because the kings would mess up, but God and his rule would go on, and it would be permanent. And then you see, finally, um, God's intimacy. He says, my name, my name is going to be here forever. My eyes and my heart, they're here, and they're accessible. We have uh, today a, a tradition in marriage where very often a spouse will take on the name of, of the one that they're marrying. And they take on that name because what do they want to show? They want to show unity. Not everybody does it. Not everybody has to do it. But they, that's one way that you show unity between two people who, who bind their life together. Is they take on their name. God says, I'm taking on your name. I mean, that you're taking on my name. And my name is going to be on you like a bride and a groom that are married. So you see the intimacy. You see the permanency. And you see God's planning. It's all there. And you ask the question, what, Pastor, does this have to do with stewardship? What does it have to, uh, to do with me taking care of God's stuff? It has everything to do with you taking care of God's stuff. Because guess what? He has made your body his temple. There is no more temple of Solomon. All the temples got destroyed. And now he says, after the work, personal work of Jesus, I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. My Holy Spirit's taking up residence in your heart. And guess what? Just like I am intentional, just like I'm permanent in your life, my grace is always there, just like I have an intimacy that desires to change your world, and he has. You have stuff that I've given you, and this is the second part. Make his dwelling make a difference in your world. Make the stuff that I've given you intentional. Make it permanent. Make it lasting, and make it intimate. That means make it a real thing. That's not just an act of I'm going to say uh, religion, but make it an act of worship of God. Do you get the difference between that? An act of religion and an act of worship. An act of worship is that you've given yourself completely over because you're not your own anymore. And that's the way that, that really God talks about your body. Your body and your stuff and everything that, that he's given you. He says in Romans chapter 12, I love this verse, when we talk about our lives, our bodies, how we respond to grace. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There's that word worship. You know, there was a, 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 there was a type of sacrifice that they did at the temple and at the tabernacle before that, but it was the Olah sacrifice. It was the complete sacrifice. It was the burnt sacrifice. There wouldn't be anything left of the sacrifice when it was done. Other sacrifices, they would cut up, take some aside, give it to the pastors. Pastors are always mooching. And then you would burn up the rest, okay? But this sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, was a complete sacrifice. Nothing was left. When God gave his life and he said, it's all gone. All of your skeletons in your closet, all of your sin is forgiven. All of that was a complete sacrifice by Jesus on the cross. He says, my sacrifices aren't done yet. Because the sacrifices that I want now from you, they're not a sacrifice that make you right with God. They're not a sacrifice that earn his favor. They're a sacrifice of worship. And the sacrifice of worship is giving your body completely over giving your stuff completely over to God. And there's not one part of your life or one corner in that house of life that is not his because you were bought at a price. That's why Solomon, I mean, these words are great and they, they apply to our bodies today. But he says in verse 12, I have chosen this place as a, a place and a temple for sacrifice. You can say that about your, your own self too. 
And finally, he says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This powerful. Because now I know when I'm facing temptation, I know that I'm not alone and that God is dwelling in me. And there's not going to be any temptation that I, I, I can't handle because your body is not your own. And he has taken up residence there. All right, in closing, we're, we're going to talk just briefly here about what we can do with this, this awesome fact that God is dwelling within us. And we say, Pastor, how are we going to use our body? Well, really, there's no rule book in the Bible in saying what you, I'm going to say, in Christian freedom can and can't do. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about the way that we use our time and our resources and our money, all of this stuff, all the stuff God gives us. One way is called the 100-year rule. All right? I... The 100-year rule was not handed down to Pastor Dan on Mount Sinai or anything like that. It's, it's just wise thinking when it comes to the stewardship of our stuff. A hundred years from now, when you look back at what you're about to do or about how you're going to use your time in the next day, in the next hour, in the next minute, or how you're going to use your money, when you look back a hundred years from now, if you can, from heaven, and, and I, I don't know if you can, but it's a thought experiment, was it worth it? Not to please yourself, but to please who lives in you. Was that investment of time when I went home and my kids were clamoring for my attention and I went right to Twitter and I went right to Facebook and I filled my face with screen, was that really worth it? Or could I have been a better steward of my time when I had my children right there with me? When I have a career, or I have a little bit of money, or a lot of money, and I think to myself, how did I spend that money? What's it going towards? And I look back on life a hundred years from now, and I think I see how I spent my money. Am I going to say to myself, now that was worth it? That had an impact in lives, and I, and I was worshiping as I did that, or was it self-seeking? Do you see how the hundred-year rule can help you decide what to do and not to do? Does what I'm doing today with my time to volunteer, my money, um, my whatever, my stuff, is it going to forward the gospel? Is it going to be an act of worship that I love and is intimate? Is it intentional? And is it permanent? That means it's going to have some kind of lasting effect. So finally, um, the second thing in the takeaway is this. Uh, we want to do a personal inventory, all of us, the whole church. We're, we're talking here, I know, online as well. Um, but we have an opportunity as a church to take a personal inventory that your pastors have come up with. Again, it was not handed down to your pastors on Mount Sinai, but it's a survey. And it's a way that you can identify how you're using your time, identify your habits that you have. And more so for you than for us, the survey will help the church to see how we can help you connect with the gifts that we, you have to the service that, that, that we want to do. But more than that, it, it's to get you to think about, to pray about, and to consider how you're using the time, talents, treasures, all of it, all the stuff God has given you to worship him out of that love of gratitude. You know that... The, the greatest gift that God has given us is not the stuff that we have, and you know that. You know it's the, it's the thing that he's done in your life. And so what if instead of always thinking about the stuff that you don't have, you take an inventory from 
the gospel like we heard tonight and say, there's nothing that I don't have because he's given me out of his riches. Because that God of all the stars has taken up residence in my life by grace. And by that grace, I'm going to take care of my stuff. Amen.